Podcastle, episode 359, for April 14th, 2015. The Litigatrix by Ken Liu, rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson. No, 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 Dave warned me not to follow the script too closely. Uh, <clears throat> I'm your host and co-editor Graham Dunlop. And folks, I'm very happy indeed to be here. Rachel and I are really excited for the opportunity to keep bringing you fantastic flights of fantasy. And we hope you'll stay with us for the ride. It's going to be great. So let's dive straight into this week's story, shall we? Podcastle is very proud to present The Litigatrix by Ken Liu, originally published at Giganotosaurus in April 2013. Ken Liu is an author and translator of speculative fiction, as well as a lawyer and programmer. A winner of the Nebula, Hugo and World Fantasy Awards, he's been published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's, Analog, Clark's World, Light Speed, and Strange Horizons, among other places. He lives with his family near Boston, Massachusetts. You can find him online at kenliu.name. Ken's debut novel, The Grace of Kings, the first in a silk-punk epic fantasy series, was published by Saga Press, Simon & Schuster's new genre fiction imprint, on April 7, 2015. Saga will also publish a collection of his short stories, The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories, in November 2015. The story is read to you by Ania Lay. Ania lives in Seattle, Washington, where she sells real estate under a different name, and writes, cooks, plays board games, takes gratuitous walks, runs the Strange Horizons podcast, and plots to take over the world. <laughs> you can hear her audio work in other places, including John Joseph Adams and Hugh Howey's The End Is Nigh and The End Is Now anthologies. You can find her writing in places such as Lightspeed, Apex, Daily Science Fiction and Escape Pod. You can stalk her blog or follow her on Twitter at Ania Lay. Links will be in the show notes. But now, get ready to follow in your father's footsteps. Be alert. Think carefully. And enjoy the story. The Litigatrix by Ken Liu The fifteenth day of the first month in the seventh year of the Huiyin era. The old man, Hewak Li, had been bedridden for months. He lay on the sleeping mat, wrapped in a blanket. The drugs helped him sleep and forget about the harsh words of his son. It was an unseasonably warm winter day here in this corner of Northeast Asia. Though the fire in the kitchen hearth next door had been extinguished, the gujul smoke passages below the floor would continue to radiate residual heat for several hours. The room was so warm that the maid, Kyun, had left the windows open to give the old man some fresh air dry and invigorating after the new snow of the day before. 
He dreamt that he was having a dinner of gogi-gyu. That pretty girl from years ago served him. He felt a pang of regret. The marinated meats made his mouth water, and he felt the heat from the grill on his face. He reached out to pour some water on the grill to lower the heat a bit, but the grill only grew hotter. The old man coughed and could not breathe. He opened his eyes. Smoke filled the room, and tongues of flame licked the ceiling and the walls. The straw mats, wooden furniture, and even the chungpan paper floor were all on fire. He cried out for help, but no one came. Mistress, a man is here to see the old master, Jian, thirteen, her face still showing baby fat, knelt by the door to the kitchen. The woman she addressed was barely more than a girl herself, but she carried herself with an air far older than her nineteen years. Siue Far was dressed in white, wore no makeup, and her dark tresses were pinned into a knot covered with a white kerchief. Grief had made her eyes red and tired. She nodded and stood up. Jian, finish making the offering to the hearth spirits in here for me. Be sure to thank them for keeping the food from our kitchen healthy and safe these last few weeks, when we were all so distracted. And then bring out tea for the guest. Siyue went to the front hall and knelt so that the silk screen in the middle of the room hid her from view of a male guest, in accordance with the precepts of her Confucian teachers. Honored guest, you wish to see my father? She bowed. Through the silk screen, the hazy outline of the man bowed back. I am Yunju Li, son of the silk merchant He Wuk Li. I have urgent business to discuss with litigator Far. The mention of her father's name made the grief fresh again. She struggled to keep her voice as calm as the surface of a lotus pond. My father passed away last week. The hazy shoulder slumped. My condolences. I just lost my father as well. His voice sounded young, uncertain. Is there a young master who will carry on Master Far's trade? I am my father's only child. That is too bad. An innocent girl's life is at stake. She thought about the times, when she was younger, when her father would take her on investigations, have her copy out petitions to the magistrates, explain to her the intricacies of the law, lay the evidence before her, and ask her to explain how she thought the deed was done. If only you weren't a girl, her father would say. You are brighter than any apprentice I've instructed, and you would make a fine litigator. Stop talking nonsense, her mother would say, back when she was still alive. You need to think about finding her a husband. Men do not want their wives running about assisting criminals. Jian came in with a tray of tea and snacks, knelt, and poured two cups, placing one on each side of the screen. What would father have wanted? She reached out and pushed the silk screen aside, ignoring Jian's gasp of surprise. Yun Chu, just as she had suspected, was barely in his twenties, and his eyes were kind, if sad. I am litigatrix Sue Far. How can I be of assistance? The ignorant think that litigators turn black into white, 
guilt into innocence. That is not so, her father had said. A litigator must always seek out the truth and defend only the truly innocent. It was not always easy to find the truth in the chaos of Yefing, capital of Dawud. The tiny kingdom, founded by a Chinese general who had escaped the turmoil of the civil wars in China at the end of the last dynasty, occupied a few hundred square li on the border between China and Korea. Its inhabitants were a mix of Chinese, Koreans, Mongols, and Jurchens. Beijing left Dawul alone because Dawul carefully acknowledged Chinese suzerainty, and Hansung left Dawul alone because the Korean kings deemed it too much trouble to conquer such a small, mountainous state. So Dawul made itself into a trading hub, and Yefing was filled with adventurers of all stripes. Chinese merchants and Korean nobles, masterless ronins escaping the incessant wars between the daimyos in Japan, Christian and Buddhist missionaries, rogue Tibetan smugglers, and even voyagers from distant Europe with blonde and red hair. Crimes were bad for business and worse for the collection of taxes. The kings of Dawul ran an efficient system of yamen courts. The magistrates investigated crimes and prosecuted criminals, determined guilt, and meted out punishment. The magistrates mean well, her father had said, but they often make mistakes in their haste and zeal. Though they despise the litigators, our work is crucial. We cast doubt on their theories, force them to examine and consider all the evidence. And when a man is wrongly accused, litigators are the only ones who can save his life. Yun Chu and Si Wei walked through the smoldering ruins of the Lee House. She spoke to him in Korean, and he to her in Chinese, each trying to make the other feel comfortable. Through the piles of rubble capped by broken ceramic shingles, the general layout could still be discerned. Though a prosperous merchant, Hewuk's house was tiny and modest, combining both Korean and Chinese features. It followed a square plan around a central courtyard that provided light and ventilation. On the north and abutting the street was the front wall, where the old man received guests and conducted business. Other residents along the street, a little-trafficked thoroughfare connecting two much larger avenues, saw no strangers pass through on the day of the fire. They did report seeing the maid, Kyun, leave the house during the first hour after noon, and Yun Chu himself left about a quarter of an hour later. Beyond the front wall, the central courtyard was filled with potted bonsai, all consumed by the fire, and several large scholars' rocks. To the west of the courtyard were the kitchen and the maid's room, and to the east, Yun Chu's room and the study, where the old man had kept his books and did his correspondence. It would have been impossible for intruders to enter the house from either direction due to the thick, windowless brick firewalls that separated the house from the neighbors. South of the courtyard was Haywook's bedroom, where he had been confined due to his illness. The bedroom had outside windows facing south, and when healthy, the old man had enjoyed the view where, beyond a grassy yard and a sharp bank, a small stream flowed past. A close examination revealed no sign of anyone having climbed up the bank recently. By the time the fire brigade had been summoned, 
the entire house was already in flames. No one could say definitively where the fire had started. Magistrate Wu and two of his inspectors were on site, along with a couple of other men, likely friends of the dead merchant. One of the men was a thin Portuguese with light brown curly hair. Another was older, bald, and dressed in the furs of a jurchen merchant. Yunju, Magistrate Wu said. I am now even more convinced that this was a case of arson, and that your maid Kyun was the perpetrator. Except for you and Kyun, no one else could have entered the house and then left without being seen by any witnesses. You, of course, are above suspicion. Could it not have been an accident, the Portuguese ventured. The underfloor heating system must be prone to the risk of fire. His Chinese was accented with both the flavor of his native tongue and the speech of the southern coast of China. The magistrate shook his head. I've examined the masonry floor and the underfloor heating passages and found no cracks. The fire must have started in the kitchen. Although Yunju said that he saw no flames in the hearth after lunch, it's likely that the maid banked the fire so low as to escape his notice. The key is that the girl acted very suspiciously. Inspectors found her at her parents' house, agitated and in distress. When they told her that her master's house had burnt down, she fainted. A search of the premises revealed a small pouch of jewelry that the family claimed to be gifts from her employer. Likely story. It's a pretty plain case of a greedy servant committing theft followed by murder to cover up her tracks. Kyun is not a murderer, Yunju said. The jewels were gifts from my father to the family for her long service. Yet the family could produce no letter indicating it was a gift. Surely they would have treasured such a letter from Master Li. Yunju had no answer for this, but he went on stubbornly. Kyun was nervous because any 16-year-old girl would be frightened by the sight of the police showing up at her house. You must catch the real killer. I've retained Miss Farr to prove her innocence. Magistrate Wu eyed Si Wei, who shifted awkwardly under his intense gaze. I did not know that you were taking up your father's habit of arguing with the law. This is hardly a suitable pursuit for a lady of good breeding. Si Wei stiffened. Is it not in accordance with the teachings of Confucius, your honor, for a child to aspire to be viewed with the same estimation as her father? Whence the dishonor? The magistrate's face grew red, and he coughed to cover his embarrassment. Based on what I've heard of Master Farr, the young lady has apparently inherited her father's quick wit, the Portuguese said. He winked at Sue, who smiled back politely. Still... It's best to not make the magistrate angry with her. Your Honor, my father spoke often of your fairness and willingness to be persuaded. I would rather have you respect than the respect of the gossiping public. The judge softened his gaze. Though he constantly vexed me with his questions and arguments, I appreciated the zeal your father brought to the pursuit of the truth. I'll see you in court in two weeks, when I'll try her. Siwei bowed in farewell as Magistrate Wu departed. Yun Chu introduced her to the Portuguese, who had adopted the Chinese name Ben Nilo and was in Dawul to purchase furs and silks for export to Europe, and the Jurchen merchant, 
whose name was Aguda, both a friend and competitor of the Lees. They offered Yun Zhu their condolences. Aguda and Ben Ni did not know each other, but bowed respectfully. I came as soon as I heard, as I was out of town on business until this morning, Aguda said. It will be hard to run the business on your own. Please do not hesitate to call on me for help. It has long been my dream to partner with the Lee name. I'm sorry that I didn't get to see old Master Lee one more time, Ben Ni said. He had very strong ideas about how things ought to be done, and I respected that. But perhaps you'll consider some changes that can only be advantageous to his legacy. Keeping one ear on the conversation, Siu Wei examined the scholar's rocks. Carved from natural sedimentary formations at the bottoms of lakes, these rocks were as tall as a man and full of holes from aeons of erosion. Contemplating their thin, wrinkled shapes and thousands of open perforations was said to cultivate the mind for more elegant thoughts. Although they were now covered in soot and water from the fire brigade, Siu Wei, careless of her dress, knelt down to examine the lower holes. She saw bits of paper that had been trapped in them and thus saved from the fire. Reaching in with her hand, she retrieved what seemed to be fragments of accounting records and personal letters, as well as a decorative rooster cut from red paper. Might Miss Farr permit me to call on her at some point in the near future? Siwei straightened and saw that the speaker was Ben Ni. She blushed the rudeness of the bold request. The way he stared at her openly with his hazel eyes was unnerving, but she also felt flattered by his attention. I shall be at your service. And I shall repay you by showing you some of the wonders of Europe, unknown in Asia. Aguda gave Ben Ni a surprised and calculating look. You aren't thinking of getting in trouble with the law, are you? Not at all. But it's always a good idea for a merchant from far away to know men, and women, who can defend him at local courts. You might want to purchase some jade ornaments from me. They improve luck, especially the sort that keeps legal troubles away. Siwei continued to the south side of the house, next to the bank. The fire had melted the snow and ice covering the yard, revealing the dead grass below. In several spots, the grass lay flat, as if something heavy had been placed there. The fire destroyed old Master Lee's collection of ice sculpture, too, Aguda said. He, a far more poetic man than I, said that they reminded him of the transient nature of all life. I just like making them as a hobby. I had given him an ice statue of a dancing girl drummer for his birthday last month, but the statue is now gone, like the recipient, long before the natural course of life. Kin, the accused maid, huddled in terror in her holding cell, and it took many minutes before Siwei was able to coax the young girl's story out of her. On the morning of the day of the fire, the girl had followed her routine. She gave the old master breakfast, cleaned the house, and then served an early lunch. Afterwards, while the old man took his afternoon nap, she left to run errands and to visit her parents. She had made sure that the fire on the hearth was put out. Yun Ju confirmed her account. He had studied in his room all morning and saw Kyun from time to time. He spoke to the old maid briefly after lunch, and then left the house to check on the warehouse in another part of the city. 
Before he left, he checked to be sure that his father was safely asleep and that nothing was out of place in the kitchen. What did you buy at the butcher's? Siubei asked the maid. Rib tips. For the Chinese radish and pork soup? Yes. The master likes it for the cold winter nights. Siubei silently berated herself. It was just like a woman to be interested in such irrelevant trivia about groceries and cooking. Her father would never have asked such stupid questions. But her father had also told her, Don't overlook details. You never know which thread will untangle the whole mess. She told the doubting voice in her head to be quiet. After the butcher stop, your last stop, you went to your parents? Yes, straight away. Which path did you take? By the city gates. It's longer, but I like to walk through the market there. Oh, I like the Han food dresses there, too. The Sioux family styles are striking this year. Yes, Miss Farr, though I couldn't see their display that day. The hour was late, and they were deep in shade under the awning. And on and on it went. Siwei found nothing of any use. The only point on which she did not feel entirely confident of Kuhn's answers concerned the small pouch of jewels found in her house. She claimed that they were gifts from the old master, and Yun Chu confirmed it. But it's very unusual for employers to give a maid such generous gifts without a formal letter of explanation. Was there a special reason? Kuhn looked at Yun Chu with terrified eyes, and the young man took over. My father had always been generous with servants. He felt a special bond with Kuhn and her family because her mother used to work for him before her marriage, and Kuhn herself has worked for us ever since she was a little girl. Sun Wei remained unconvinced. Something about the way Kuhn looked at Yun Ju troubled her. Just because Magistrate Wu said there were no witnesses didn't mean that it was true. Sunwei and Chiyun arrived at the ruins of the Li house just after dusk, the hour of dinner. Yunchu was staying temporarily as a guest with the Guda, so the place was deserted. Mistress, I don't like ghosts, Chiyun said, shivering in the darkness. Don't worry, we're just here to visit the household hearth spirits. Chiyun was relieved. Men did not pay much attention to the lowly hearth spirits. But Sunwei and Jiyin always took care to keep up the offerings to their own house spirits for safety from fire and for the rice to not be burnt. From a basket, Jiyin took out dumplings and candied fruits and set them out on a small plates in what remained of the hearth. Siwei lit the candles beside them and began to pray. Honored spirits of the hearth of the Li family, it is time for dinner to be made. I have rekindled the flames in this cold hearth. Poor spirits, she thought. The hearth spirits were having a hard time these days, with so many households converting to Christianity and driving them out. Homeless spirits could sometimes squeeze in at hearths in other houses. But no spirits would want to share the hearth with refugees from a burnt-down house because they were bad luck. In this cold winter, it would not be many days before they faded away with no sustaining fire. Gradually, as the flames from the candles flickered in the wind, two translucent forms, an old man and an old woman, 
appeared in their faint glow. Thank you, thank you. Honored spirits, can you tell me what you remember of the fire? Terrible light! Sun Wei had to strain to hear their weak voices above the wind. So hot! So bright! Did you see how the fire started? From the sky! From the floor! From the sky! From the floor! Si Wei frowned. They were not making any sense. Did you see who started the fire? The couple began to dance. The old man jumped about, holding an imaginary book-barrel drum over his shoulder and hitting it with an imaginary stick. Tum-tum, tum-tum, the old man and woman chanted as they danced. You are celebrating, Siwei whispered. An idea hit her. A celebration involves fireworks. You're saying that the fire began when someone launched lit fireworks into the house? That's what you meant by from the sky. But that couldn't be. Somebody would have seen or heard the explosions. The old couple ignored her and began to bicker. She's your flesh and blood. I've done all I can do for her. Not nearly enough. Siwei shook her head. She had come too late. The spirits were old, and the destruction of the house must have shocked them and driven them mad. Yin was flabbergasted. For a man to visit an unmarried woman at such a late hour was scandalous. But Siwei told her that it would be even ruder to refuse him entry. Jian made a show of banging the tea kettle in the kitchen as loudly as possible. Oblivious of the lack of welcome, Ben Ni sat down. Miss Farr, I hope the investigation is going well. Actually, I've made no progress at all. You seem exhausted. Perhaps a conversation with a foreigner would help you think of a new perspective on familiar persons and things. Ah, perspective. That is what I have come to show you. A marvel of European ingenuity. Ben Ni pulled out a metal tube from his traveling pouch and went into the courtyard. Siwei was intrigued. Like her father, she enjoyed learning about all sorts of subjects. He set up the instrument on a stand so that it pointed into the sky, peered through the lower end, made some adjustments, and gestured for Siwei to take a look for herself. It was a view of the moon, but a moon that was much closer and bigger. She gasped and pulled back. Ben Ni laughed. This is a telescope. It employs the principles of optics to magnify distant objects. Si Wei bent down again. The moon appeared as a piece of jade etched with dark shadows and patterns. She looked in vain for signs of the rabbit and the osmanthus tree from the fairy tales of her childhood. Astounding, she murmured. The mechanical inventions of Europe are as delightful as the fine water silk of Korea, and such marvels ought to be shared. But Korea forbids her merchants from selling to us because we sell weapons to Japan. Is that why you wanted to trade with Master Hewuk Lee here in Dawul, to get around the restrictions? Ben Ni nodded. I was willing to offer him higher prices and an exclusive on European goods, 
but Lee was suspicious and did not want to offend his buyers in China, and he saw no use in my mechanical clocks and other toys. His son, however, is much like yourself, and intrigued by the possibilities of the new. I understand that father and son did not get along. Siwei filed away this information in her head. She asked Ben Ni to explain the principles of optics, and pressed him to sketch out the means by which lenses focused in bent light. Ben Ni then excitedly trained the telescope on another part of the sky. As Siwei bent down to look through the tube, Ben Ni hovered behind her and put one hand on her shoulder. Siwei froze and looked back, but Ben Ni's guileless face, eagerly anticipating her reaction, showed that he had not meant to insult her. She tried to relax and gaze at the rings of Saturn through the telescope, but her mind was not among the stars. She blushed at the heat of his body, transmitted through his hand and her thin dress. Long after Ben Ni left, she remembered the feel of his hand. Did your father have enemies? They were walking back from an interview with Kyun's parents. The mother had moved to Ye Fing from the countryside twenty years earlier and found work as a maid for Hewuk Lee, and the father was a jurchen laborer. They shed no light on the situation. Yun Ju chose his words carefully. I didn't know my father very well. As a boy, I was sent away to study in China and returned only last year. But I believe that he was a careful and fair man. While he made sure that he got his due, he did not exact unfair advantage from his trading partners. The only man who might dislike him is Aguda. My father and he were fierce competitors, but it was my father, not Aguda, who won the license to import Korean silk. They were civil to each other, though, and Aguda visited my father during his illness. But he was away on the day of the fire. Right, and he's been pleasant to me since then, offering to acquire my father's, my, Korean silk license and our entire inventory on hand until I can get my affair sorted out to buy the license back from him. Indeed, I'm staying with him now. His offer is low, but I might have to take it. The fire destroyed all of our business records, and it will take a while to reconstruct accounts and customer lists. They had passed by the Lee warehouse earlier. Siu Wei remembered glancing at the lifeless building, doors locked, the snow in front pristine, unsullied by the footprints of laborers and buyers, as though it were in mourning for its master. Siu Wei stopped at the market to purchase food for dinner. She had been running the household since her mother's death, and she didn't mind doing the errands herself. Could I have some rib tips? I've none left, the butcher said. Everybody wants rib tips for soup in the winter. You have to come early if you want them. Disappointed, Siwe settled for some inferior pig's feet. I'll walk you back to Aguda's, she offered. Aguda's house was in the style of a jurchen hunting lodge. There was no central courtyard, and all of the rooms were in a row. Please excuse my appearance, Aguda said, laughing as he wiped the sweat from his face and neck with a cloth. I was not expecting visitors. Master Guda has been pursuing his hobby, Yunju said. He's the best ice sculptor in Yifeng. 
Young Master Lee is far too kind. Why don't you show Miss Far your workshop? Yunju asked. Oh, it's dark and damp and cold. Hardly a place for a lady. Sue's face grew hot at this. No, I do want to see it. I am not so delicate. Reluctantly, Aguda led them through a shed into an underground ice cellar. There was an empty workspace in the middle, lit by several large oil lamps backed with curved, silvered mirrors to focus the light. Siwe appreciated the novel design of the lamps, now that she had learned something about optics from Ben Ni. Aguda was clearly a clever man to have discovered such principles on his own. I keep the cellar insulated with straw and stock it with river ice all winter so I can work even in summer. The sculpture he was working on was a great ice dragon, half-finished, so that it seemed as if the translucent creature was leaping out of a block of ice. Chisel and hammer lay on a bench nearby, testifying to Aguda's exertions. She looked around the cellar and saw ice wolves, soldiers, dancers lifting book drums over their heads. Was this one of the sculptures you gave to Master Lee? Aguda nodded, his face clouding over with sorrow. She walked closer to examine the sculpture. The ice dancer stood on her tiptoes, lifting the book high over her head, one of the flat surfaces tilted slightly downwards. Siwe imagined the statue outside the window of Heiwuk's bedroom. Even lying down, the old man would have been able to see the girl's head and arms, and of course the drum, glowing bright with the sun behind it. I stand in the presence of a great artist, Siwe said. Aguda brushed away the compliment with a laugh that sounded forced. The cold and stale air in the ice cellar made Siwe uncomfortable, and the flickering shadows unsettled her. Aguda's demeanor was not exactly warm. Everything made her want to leave. She grew annoyed with herself. Her father had often gone into shadowy places and met with distrust. If she was going to carry on her father's legacy, she had to be bolder. She decided to ask for something from the cellar to prove that she was not frightened. May I ask for a memento of my visit? she asked. I truly admire your art. She pointed to a small, rough cylinder of ice on a workbench. Shadows flickered across Aguda's face, but he soon grinned. That is nothing more than the core I drilled out of the model of a well. Siwe forced herself to overcome her natural instinct to be diffident. She had to learn to push. Nevertheless, I'd like to have it if you would honor me so. Aguda handed it to her wordlessly. One end of the cylinder of ice had carved markings that imitated the rim of a well. He was telling the truth. She thanked Aguda, and the three emerged from the cellar to take tea in the backyard. It was a bright day, but still not too warm. Siwei placed the ice core next to her on the swept earth. In natural sunlight, she noticed that the ice cylinder seemed to be gray. Looking closer, she saw that many fine particles were suspended in the translucent ice, giving it the dark coloration instead of the expected brilliant, cloudy white. The warm teacup in her hands chased the memories of the chill and dank ice cellar away. They chatted of inconsequential things. 
After tea, Siwe stood up to say goodbye. But as she bent down to pick up her memento, she saw only a tiny frog carved from ice, but ice so clear that the frog almost disappeared against the ground. She picked it up in her palm, amazed. How was this done? Agudas scratched his head and mumbled, I was trying to make the sculpture of a frog at the bottom of the well. I wasn't sure it would work. Siwe remembered the dirty appearance of the ice cylinder. You carved the frog first, out of the clearest river ice, with no trapped air or imperfections. Then you immersed it in a solution of water and fine river silt, so that the frog was frozen inside a column of dark ice. Just like how we sprinkle coal dust to melt ice before doorways, the dark ice of the well melts first to reveal the clearer ice frog within. As far as indeed wise, said Aguda. I'm certain that the truth of Master Lee's murder will soon be revealed to your gaze, just as this frog has been revealed by the heat of the sun. As Si Wei handed Chi Yin the basket of groceries, she paused and considered the pig's feet, a poor substitute for rib tips. You have to come early if you want them. You lied, Si Wei said. Kyun began to cry. She put her arms around her knees and rocked herself. You bought rib tips on the day of the fire. Many favor the cut for its richness in these cold winter days, and the butcher generally sells out by early afternoon. The distance between the butcher's and your family's house is only a quarter of an hour's walk. Yet you told me that you could not see the Sioux family's dress display in the shadow of late afternoon. There's a missing hour or more in your account of the day. Mixed in with Siwe's disappointment was also some pride. This was a detail that even her father might have missed. A woman's detail. Tell me how you really spent the hours between the butcher shop and your family. Is the girl guilty after all? I can't. I just can't. The girl wiped the tears with her sleeves. I didn't start the fire. I would never do anything to harm the old master. Instinctively, Siwe believed the girl. But she is hiding some other secret. The maid's face was porcelain white from the lack of sunlight and nourishing food, pale like the pristine snow before the Lee warehouse. No one had been there since the last snow, which was on the day before the fire. Xun Wei shuddered. Yun Zhu did not go to the warehouse on the day of the fire. He had lied, too. In her mind, she saw again how the frightened girl had looked to Yun Zhu for direction the last time she was here. She took a gamble. You met Yun Zhu. The girl stopped crying and stared at her, her mouth open in shock. Siwe's heart pounded in her chest. He gave you those jewels, didn't he? You were in love, and he wanted to give your parents your bride price. But the girl emphatically shook her head. No, no, the young master, it's ridiculous what you suggest. Again, Siwe believed the girl. If Yunju was not in love with her, 
Then what was he doing meeting the maid in secret? She made a show of nodding in approval. Good. That shows the proper mindset of a servant. Young Master Lee already told me everything. He could not allow you to speak freely last time because prison guards were around. Just now, I was testing you to make sure you weren't getting any wrong ideas after all he's done for you. Kuhn sighed in relief. Thank you, Miss Farr. But you're like the young master, kind yet unpredictable. He really shocked you that day, didn't he? Oh, yes. That morning when he and the old master shouted and argued, I was so scared that I ran into the kitchen and hid behind the woodpile. But he caught me later on my way to my parents and insisted on giving me the bag of jewels. I was so confused. Siwe tried to keep her voice level. He told me you had a nice long chat. Kyun nodded. He asked me so many questions. What it was like when I was little? What foods did I enjoy? What did I think of the old master? And then he asked me whether I heard what he and the old master were arguing about. I said no because I was so scared that I stuffed my fingers in my ears. He said that was fine. Just don't ever talk about the argument or our chat. And he said that the jewels were from the old master. It's what you deserve. Siwe's mind was a chaotic mess. She paced around her room and waved Jian away in irritation when she came to inquire about dinner. Kyun and Yun Ju were the only two who had access to the Lee house on the day of the fire. They were the only plausible suspects. The good news is that her client was innocent. The bad news is that her employer was probably the murderer. Yun Ju had admitted that he was not close to his father and Ben Ni had indicated that there was tension between the father and the son over the direction of their business. Impatient with the old man's conservative approach, was Yun Ju tempted by the idea of getting his father out of the way? The argument that morning was probably the last straw. Once Kyun was out of the house, Yun Ju had ample opportunity to start the fire and leave, or even kill He Wuk in sleep and use the fire to destroy the evidence. The chase after Kyun, the jewels, the extracted promise of secrecy? These were the actions of a man intent on silencing a witness with bribes to cover his tracks. His insistence that the jewels were a gift from his father was a lie to get Kyun to accept the jewels. The questions he asked the girl were probably intended to test whether she lacked sophistication and could be easily dominated and manipulated. Or... Even more deviously, were the jewels an attempt to make the authorities suspect Kyun? In that case, hiring Si Wei Far to defend Kyun just added another layer of deception. After all, who would suspect the person paying to defend the accused of intending to frame her for murder? Si Wei gritted her teeth. Yun Jun probably picked Si Wei Far as the litigator specifically because of her lack of experience. He thought she could be easily fooled. Which would you obey, she asked, your employer or your conscience? 
Si Wei had agreed to help Ben Ni select a suitable jade ornament from Aguda's collection of curios and antiques. Aguda was away for the moment to take care of some business while he left his guests to browse his shop on their own. She could not decide on the right course. To save Kyun, she had to find out the truth. But if the murderer really was Yun Chu, then her investigation also seemed a kind of betrayal. Ben Ni was the only one she felt she could talk to. Ben Ni stopped his examination of a small jade horse and turned around. I'm not sure. Life is often about compromises. But there's a satisfaction in giving the truth its due that is sweeter than anything else. Si Wei nodded and mulled over Ben Ni's words as she continued to look around the cluttered storeroom. Scholars' rocks and corals were in one corner, and bronze weapons and ritual vessels in another. Shelves along one wall held clocks, jade figurines, intricate Chi Quan models and Tang porcelain. Aguda had acquired his collection with little organization or taste. She picked up a metallic tube from one of the shelves. It was a telescope, smaller than the one Ben Ni had shown her. Where did you get that? She heard Ben Ni shout and saw that his face was drained of color. Startled, she dropped the telescope, and it cracked against the ground, scattering rolling glass lenses around the floor. As they both knelt to collect the pieces, Ben Ni lowered his voice and apologized. I'm sorry to have startled you. I was surprised that Aguda had such a thing in his possession. He must have gotten it from another European. Ben Ni nodded. I beg you not to mention this mishap to him. He will gouge me on the price for the jade if he is in a bad mood. Please hand me the pieces. He hid them away in his pouch. After the purchase, I will show him these and explain that it was my fault. Aguda came back and they haggled over the price for the jade horse a bit before concluding the deal. Miss Farr, would you mind departing on your own? I have some additional matters I'd like to discuss with Master Aguda. Siwei happily made her escape. But as she was about to leave the house, she realized with dismay that one of the lenses of the telescope had been caught in the folds of her voluminous sleeve. She picked up the smooth, curved glass and hesitated. She did not want to go back, but it would be wrong to deprive Aguda of a chance to fix his instrument because of a missing piece. Reluctantly, she turned around and walked back to the storeroom. As she prepared to knock on the door, she heard shouting voices from within. How could you have been so careless as to leave it out in the open? We aren't even supposed to have met till the old man died. She's very clever. You were the one who insisted on sniffing after her like an eager puppy. What game do you think you're playing? For a moment, the noise of blood rushing into her ears drowned out all other sound. Siu Wei forced herself to calm down. She carefully backed herself down the hall into the room next door, a pantry for sacks of grains and potatoes, and put her ear to the thin wall. Tabs on what she knows. You should have stayed away. Let the stupid magistrate hang the maid. She's beginning to suspect Yun Ju, and I nudged her a bit. If he hangs, even better. 
The pantry was stuffy and dark, but there was a small window high up and a slanted shaft of light through which a million dust motes floated cut through the darkness. She had no coherent thoughts. Idly, she held up the lens into the light. It cast a fuzzy image of the scene outside the window onto the opposite wall. She stared at the image, but could not make any sense of it. She remembered that Ben Nee had explained that this was because the light was not in focus. Buy Yin Ju's license as soon as possible, as we planned. If she accuses him and he is convicted, it will sheet to the estate. Siu Wei moved the lens so that the image fell on her opened palm. She moved the lens up and down, trying to make the image clearer. As the rays of light were focused into a single bright point, she almost cried out. The point of light was so hot that it burned. But the pain also cleared her mind, brought it into sharp focus. An image of the hearth spirits miming a drum dance, lifting an imaginary book drum high overhead, came unbidden into her head. Are you confident that you can save Kyun? Siwe nodded. Yun Chu shuffled awkwardly for a bit. I can't actually pay your fee right away, as I have very little cash, and you insisted that I not sell my inventory and license to Aguda. I'm grateful for your hospitality. It just seems unfair when I am supposed to be paying you. Si Wei had insisted that Yun Chu move into her house from Aguda's before the trial, despite the gossip such a move created. She explained that she needed to consult him often to prepare for the trial. She was much relieved when he complied. Magistrate Wu emerged from the door at the front of the Yaman court in his formal robes and hat. The bailiffs, standing in two lines along the front of the courtroom, pounded their staffs against the flagstone floor rhythmically as he ascended the dais to take his seat behind the bench. The murmuring among the audience quieted down. Siwe looked around and saw that both Aguda and Ben Ni were in the crowd. The magistrate slapped his hardwood ruler, the symbol of justice and his authority, against the surface of the bench in a loud snap that rang around the room. The court was in session. Now we hear the case of the murder of Heok Lee. My staff and I have diligently investigated the matter and concluded that the cause of death is arson committed by one Kyun, maid of the Lee household. The magistrate surveyed the audience with cold eyes as two of the bailiffs brought Kyun in shackles. She was made to kneel before the bench. On the day of the fire... You stole valuable jewels from Heiwuk Lee and did mischief in the kitchen to start a slow fire that would grow out of control after you left the house. You had the motive, the means, and the opportunity. How do you plead? Siwe stepped out of the audience and stood beside Kyun. She bowed deeply. Your Honor, I am litigatrix Siwe Far, here to speak for the accused. We plead innocence. Very well. What do you have to say? You think she kept a low fire going in the kitchen, but I can prove that the fire did not start there. She reached into the folds of her sleeve and retrieved bits of crumpled paper and handed them to the one of the bailiffs to bring up to the bench. 
These were found lodged in the holes of the lower section of the scholars' rocks in the Lee courtyard. A burning fire pushes hot air away from itself on top and replenishes itself by drawing in cold air below. So these bits of paper were blown into their refuge by the cold air currents fueling the fire before it had spread to all the rooms. The accounting records and letters clearly came from the study on the east side, and the red paper rooster was the kind of charm commonly hung on the wall of the kitchen for New Year's. Together, they showed that the air was drawn out of both the east and west sides of the courtyard at the beginning of the fire. The murderer started the fire not in the kitchen, but in Kaywook's bedroom. The magistrate stared at Si Wei. But how could that be? Yun Ju saw his father's bedroom after Kyun already left, and there were no signs of any fire. No one could have entered the house during the relevant hours. I will show you. Si Wei placed a piece of paper on the floor of the courtroom. This is called a lens, she said, and took out the glass lens that she had kept from Agutis telescope. It has the ability to bend light rays and focus them. She held the lens over the paper, adjusting the distance until sunlight from the windows along the southern wall was focused into a single bright point on the paper. Soon, the paper began to smoke, and a tongue of fire began to dance on its surface. The crowd gasped. On the day of the fire, there was already a lens at the Lee house, ready to do mischief as the sun reached the proper alignment. From the sky! From the floor! Si Wei raised her voice to be heard above the excited crowd. Your Honor, I will prove my claims, but first you must immediately detain the merchants Aguda and Ben Ni for conspiracy to commit murder. As Magistrate Wu watched, Si Wei directed the bailiffs to carry out the ice sculptures of the drum dancers from the cellar. Since Hei Wook refused to sell Korean silk to Ben Ni, both Aguda and Ben Ni desired to get the old man out of the way and force his son to sell the silk license cheaply to Aguda. Combining their knowledge of optics and ice, they planned murder for profit. The greatest advantage of using an ice lens to start a fire is that the instrument would be destroyed by the heat, leaving no evidence, and the murderers would not need to be nearby, giving them good alibis. But the disadvantage of such a method is that it is unreliable, and success depends on the right weather and more than a bit of luck. That is why they made multiple statues, so that if one should melt and fail to ignite, the others could be gifted to Hewuk to try again. The magistrate walked gingerly about the ice drum dancers, as if they could burst into flames at any moment. But where is the lens? Siu Wei pointed to the book drums over the dancers' heads. Aguda has discovered the art of creating ice sculptures in layers that would reveal themselves as darker ice melted before light ice. He hid a clear lens inside a drum made of dark ice. Carefully, Si Wei melted the layer of dark ice with her hands dipped in warm water until the clear ice lens emerged. The murderers knew that Kei Wook would be left alone at home most afternoons. They calculated the angle and focal length of the lens to bring the heat of the sun to a single burning point on the paper floor of the bedroom when the sun was high in the west. Then, 
Aguda installed a statue outside Hebuk's window as a gift. They only needed to wait for a warm day to bring forth fire from ice. Litigatrix Far, Master Wu said, his voice gruff. Ignore the gossips. Your father would be proud to see you today, and I shall always be honored to have your assistance in my court. Siwei bowed deeply and hid her surprised tears of gratitude with her sleeves. As Magistrate Wu read the formal charges against Aguda and Ben Ni and placed them in shackles, he seemed to have forgotten about the bag of jewels that made him suspect Kyun in the first place. And that was just fine. Not all truths needed to be broadcast. A good litigator knew when to be discreet. Yunju stood protectively next to the freed Kyun. Now that Si Wei knew the truth, she could easily see the family resemblance. She's your flesh and blood. I've done all I can do for her. Not nearly enough. The hearth spirits had been repeating a fragment of the argument between Yun Chu and He Wuk. Yun Chu was endeavoring to pay for his father's sins in secret, to recompense the girl ignorant of her own paternity without bringing shame to the family. Both of them, she realized, were working to preserve the legacy of their fathers, one by uncovering the truth, the other by hiding it. Someday, she hoped, Yun Chu would find the courage to tell his sister who she really was. Yun stepped away for a moment to be embraced by her parents. Litigatrix, Yun Ju said, bowing to her, the Li family is in your debt. There's a satisfaction in giving the truth its due that is sweeter than anything else, she said, her voice barely above a whisper. Now, would you come with me to welcome your hearth spirits into my house until you can rebuild a house of your own? And welcome back. We hope you enjoyed the story. But speaking of welcome back, here's an announcement from someone with whom you may be familiar. Hey everyone, it's me, Dave Thompson. It's good to be back. People have been asking what I'll be up to after Podcastle, and I'm delighted to announce my very first collection of short stories that I'm funding through Kickstarter. This collection, titled And Welcome Back, pronounced of course, And Welcome Back is going to include three stories from my St. Darwin's universe, which is this weird steampunk-esque world where Charles Darwin invented these goggles that let you see ghosts, filled with all kinds of monsters and violence and thrills and ghostgasms. There's a bedtime lullaby of a space opera, post-apocalyptic Maui, and, of course, my own love letter to Podcastle, and Welcome Back which you might remember that I posted the audio version for free, exclusively on my new website, spiritualnoir.net, when I said goodbye to you a couple weeks ago. And now I'm back. Uh, Not very good with goodbyes and leaving sometimes. Anyway, these are stories about friendship, love, adventure, spirituality, and escapism. Basically, all of my favorite things. 
I put together some pretty cool stretch goals too, like a digital Mad Libs-esque chapter book of Easter werewolf stories, written by some of my favorite people like Anne Leckie, Amalo Motar, Rachel K. Jones, Nathaniel Lee, Matt Wallace, Mer Lafferty, and more, and that's going to be a ton of fun. Plus, I'm really excited about the opportunity to do a DRM-free audiobook, narrated not only by me, but by other voices we all love including Graham Dunlop, Alistair Stewart, M.K. Hobson, Tina Connolly, C.S.C. Cooney, and Marguerite Kenner. So if you're interested in coming by and joining me on this journey, please check out the link in this episode's show notes, and I look forward to seeing you there. Thanks so much. Personally, I can't wait for this to be out. I shall certainly be kickering for this one. If you've not heard Dave's stories from this particular world... You can still hear St. Darwin's Spirituals over at the sadly missed Variant Frequencies website. We'll put a link in the show notes. Feedback is for episode 349, This Sullied Earth, Our Home, by Monadipa Mondal, and read by Elizabeth Green Musselman. This one kicked off our Artemis Rising month of stories. In general, people were pretty happy with the story, though some felt it required a bit more focus than usual to listen. And there was some speculation as to the children's gender. A.M. Fish said, So a bunch of subplots got together to make this wonderful story. I especially liked how the backstory was given by two characters as they walked to the site where the action of the story would take place. And those two backstories were nothing alike, but fit together so perfectly. I listened to the first two-thirds of the story several times before I heard the story to the end. I enjoyed picking up more detail about the characters and understanding them differently as I went through. Even so, I had simply assumed that the two children were female. I should not have been so lazy when one suggested they go out one as each. I'm looking forward to reading the rest of this collection. And Duango said, It was a hard story to follow, but well worth the second reading. I did not even notice the children's gender, as the total sum of the stories was so much more interesting. Besides, they were plants. So are neither boy nor girl, just as Spongebob is asexual. Hey, look it up. There was politics, science, magic, circuses, botany, Germany, India, and Ginny. What more could one ask for in this kaleidoscope of a story? Wait, SpongeBob is asexual? Well, I guess it makes sense. Um, he's a sponge, after all. But, well, actually, sponges are hermaphroditic, so... Uh, anyway, thanks for those comments. Why don't you come join the conversation at forum.escapeartists.net? Tell us what you thought of this or indeed any other story. Well, that was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Peter Wood, my co-editor Rachel K. Jones and myself, thanks for stopping by and sharing a story with us. We'll be back next week with another Until then, this is Graham Dunlop reminding you that if you want rib tips, you have to go early. 
Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Alan Dershowitz said, A criminal trial is never about seeking justice for the victim. If it were, there could be only one verdict. Guilty. Buddhas of the past, present and future, they are drunk with demons.